The Marching Morons by C. M. Cornbluth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. The Marching Morons, Part 2 by C. M. Cornbluth. When his eyes again became accustomed to the moderate lighting of the lobby, he groped his way to a bench and opened the newspaper he had bought. It turned out to be the racing sheet, which afflicted him with a crushing sense of loss. The familiar boxed index in the lower left-hand corner of the front page showed almost unbearably that Churchill Downs and Empire City were still in business. Blinking back tears, he turned to the past performances at Churchill. They weren't using abbreviations any more, and the pages, because of that, were single column instead of double. But it was all the same. Or was it? He squinted at the first race, a three-quarter mile maiden claimer for thirteen hundred dollars. Incredibly, the track record was two minutes, ten and three-fifths second. Any beetle in his time could have knocked off the three-quarters in one-fifteen. It was the same for the other distances, much worse for root events. What the hell had happened to everything? He studied the form of a five-year-old brown mare in a second, and couldn't make head or tail of it. She had won and lost and placed and showed and lost and placed without a rhyme or reason. She looked like a front-runner for a couple of races, and then she looked like a no-good pig, and then she looked like a mudder. But the next time it rained, she wasn't, and then she was a stayer, and then again she was a pig again. In a good $5,000 allowances event, too. Barlow looked at the other entries, and it slowly dawned on him that they were all like the five-year-old brown mare. Not a single damned horse running had the slightest trace of class. Somebody sat down beside him and said, That's the story. Barlow whirled to his feet, and so it was Tinny Pete, his driver. I was in doubts about telling you, said the psychist, but I see you have some growing suspicions of the truth. Please don't get excited. It's all right, I tell you. So you've got me, said Barlow. Got you? Don't pretend. I can put two and two together. You're the secret police. You and the rest of the aristocrats live in luxury on the sweat of these oppressed slaves. You're afraid of me because you have to keep them ignorant. <laughs> there was a bellow of bright laughter from the psychist that got them blank looks from other patrons of the lobby. The laughter didn't sound at all sinister. Let's get out of here, said Tinny Pete, still chuckling. You couldn't possibly have it more wrong. He engaged Barlow's arm and led him to the street. The actual truth is that the millions of workers live in luxury on the sweat of the handful of aristocrats. I shall probably die before my time of overwork, unless, he gave Barlow a speculative look, you may be able to help us. I know that gag, sneered Barlow. I made money in my time, and to make money you have to get people on your side. Go ahead and shoot me if you want, but you're not going to make a fool out of me. 
"'You nasty little ingrate!' snapped the psychist, with a kaleidoscopic change of mood. "'This damned mess is all your fault, and the fault of people like you. Now come along, and no more of your nonsense.' He yanked Barlow into an office-building lobby, and an elevator that disconcertingly went whoosh loudly as it rose. The real estate man's knees were wobbly as the psychist pushed him from the elevator down a corridor and into an office. A hawk-faced man rose from a plain chair as the door closed behind them. After an angry look at Barlow, he asked the psychist, "'Was I called from the pole to inspect this, this?' Unget up, dandard. I've deprobed it fine quasi-chance exim aprob bat attack line, said the psychist soothingly. Doubt, cried the hawk-faced man. Try, suggested Tinny Pete. Very well, Mr. Barlow, I understand you and your lamented had no children. Uh, what of it? This of it? You were a blind, selfish, stupid ass to tolerate economic and social conditions, which penalized childbearing by the prudent and the foresighted. You made us what we are today, and I want you to know that we are far from satisfied. Damn fool rockets, damn fool automobiles, damn fool cities with overhead ramps. As far as I can see, said Barlow, you're running down the best features of time. Are you crazy? The rockets aren't rockets. They're turbojets. Good turbojets, but the fancy shell around them makes for a bad drag. The automobiles have a top speed of one hundred kilometers per hour. A kilometer is, if I recall my paleolinguistics, three-fifths of a mile. And the speedometers are all rigged accordingly, so the drivers will think they're going two hundred and fifty. The cities are ridiculous, expansive, unsanitary, wasteful conglomerations of people would be better off and more productive if they were spread over the countryside. We need the rockets and tricks, pedometers and cities because, while you and your kind were being prudent and foresighted and not having children, the migrant workers, slum dwellers and tenant farmers were shiftlessly and short-sightedly having children. Breeding! Breeding! My God, how they bred! Wait a minute, objected Barlow. There were lots of people in our crowd who had two or three children. The attrition of accidents, illness, wars, and such took care of that. Your intelligence was bred out. It is gone. Children that should have been born never were. The just average, they'll get along, majority, took over the population. The average IQ now is forty-five. But that's far in the future. So are you, grunted the hawk-faced man sourly. But who are you people? Just people, real people. Some generations ago, the geneticists realized at last that nobody was going to pay any attention to what they said. So they abandoned words for deeds, specifically they formed and recruited for a closed corporation intended to maintain and improve the breed. We are their descendants, about three million of us. There are five billion of the others, so we are their slaves. 
during the past couple of years i've designed a skyscraper kept billings memorial hospital here in chicago running headed off war with mexico and directed traffic at laguardia field in new york i don't understand why don't you let them go to hell in their own way the man grimaced we tried it once for three months we holed up at the south pole and waited they didn't notice it some drafting-room people were missing some chief nurses didn't show up minor government people on the non-policy level couldn't be located it didn't seem to matter in a week there was hunger in two weeks there were famine and plague in three weeks war and anarchy we called off the experiment it took us most of the next generation to get things squared away again but why didn't you let them kill each other off five billion corpses mean about five hundred million tons of rotting flesh hmm. barlow had another idea why don't you sterilize them two and one-half billion operations is a lot of operations because they breed continuously the job would never be done oh i see like the marching chinese who the devil are they it was a um, a paradox of my time somebody figured out that if all the chinese in the world were to line up four abreast i think it was and start marching past a given point they'd never stop because of the babies that would be born and grow up before they passed the point oh, that's right only instead of a given point make it the largest conceivable number of operating rooms that we could build and staff there could never be enough say said barlow those movies about babies was that your propaganda it was it doesn't seem to mean a thing to them we have abandoned the idea of attempting propaganda contrary to a biological drive so if you work with a biological drive I know of none which is consistent with inhibition of fertility. Barlow's face went poker blank, the result of years of careful discipline. You don't, huh? You're the great brains, and you can't think of any? Why, no, said the psychist innocently. Can you? Uh, that depends. I sold ten thousand acres of Siberian tundra through a dummy firm of course after the partition of russia the buyers thought they were getting improved building lots on the outskirts of kiev i'd say that was a lot tougher than this job how so asked the hawk-faced man those were normal suspicious customers and these are morons born suckers you just figure out a con they'll fall for they won't know enough to do any smart checking the psychist and the hawk-faced man had also had training they kept themselves from looking with sudden hope at each other you seem to have something in mind said the psychist barlow's poker face went blanker still maybe i have i haven't heard any offer yet there's the satisfaction of knowing that you've prevented earth's resources from being so plundered the hawk-faced man pointed out that the race will soon become extinct i don't know that barlow said bluntly 
All I have is your word. If you really have a method, I don't think any price would be too great, the psychist offered. Money? said Barlow. All you want. More than you want, the hawk-faced man corrected. Prestige? added Barlow. Plenty of publicity, my picture and my name in the papers and over TV every day, statues to me, parks and cities and streets and other things named after me, a whole chapter in the history books. The psychist made a facial sign to the hawk-faced man that meant, oh, brother. The hawk-faced man signaled back, steady boy. It's not too much to ask, the psychist agreed. Barlow, sensing a seller's market, said, Power. Power? The hawk-faced man repeated puzzledly. Your own hydro-station or nuclear pile? I mean a world dictatorship with me as dictator. Well, now, said the psychist, but the hawk-faced man interrupted. It would take a special emergency act of Congress, but the situation warrants it. I think that can be guaranteed. Could you give us some indication of your plan? The psychist asked. Ever hear of lemmings? No. They are, were, I guess, since you haven't heard of them, little animals in Norway, and every few years they swarm to the coast and swim out to sea until they drowned. I figure on putting some lemming urge into the population. Well, how? I'll save that till I get the right signatures on the deal. The hawk-faced man said, I'd like to work with you on it, Barlow. My name's Ryan Ngana, he put out his hand. Barlow looked closely at the hand, then at the man's face. Ryan what? Ngana. That sounds like an African name. It is. My mother's father was a Watusi. Barlow didn't take the hand. I thought you looked pretty dark. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I don't think I'd be at my best working with you. There must be somebody else just as well qualified, I'm sure. The psychist made a facial sign to Ryan Ngana that meant, Steady yourself, boy. Very well, Ryan Ngana told Barlow. We'll see what arrangement can be made. It's not that I'm prejudiced, you understand. Some of my best friends, Mr. Barlow, don't give it another thought. Anybody who can pick on the lemming analogy is going to be useful to us. And so he would, thought Ryan Ngana, alone in the office after Tinny Pete had taken Barlow up to the helicopter stage. So he would. Pop Prob had exhausted every rational attempt, and the new Pop Prob attack lines would have to be irrational or subrational. This creature from the past, with his lemming legends and his improved building lots, would be a fountain of precious, vicious self-interest. Ryan Ingana sighed and stretched. He had to go and run the San Francisco subway. Summoned early from the pool to study Barlow, he had left unfinished a nice little theorem. Between interruptions, he was slowly constructing an indimensional geometry whose foundations and superstructure owed no debt whatsoever to intuition. Upstairs, waiting for a helicopter, Barlow was explaining to Tinny Pete that he had nothing against Negroes, and Tinny Pete wished he had some Rhine and Ghana's imperturbability 
and humor for the ordeal. The helicopter took them to International Airport, where, Tinny Pete explained, Barlow would leave for the pole. The man from the past wasn't sure he'd like a dreary waste of ice and cold. Oh, it's all right, said the psychist. A civilized layout, warm and pleasant. You'll be able to work more efficiently there. All the facts at your fingertips, a good secretary. I'll need a pretty big staff, said Barlow, who had learned from thousands of deals never to take the first offer. I meant a private confidential one, said Tinny Pete readily, but you can have as many as you want. You'll naturally have a top primary top priority if you really have a workable plan. Well, let's not forget this dictatorship angle, said Barlow. He didn't know that the psychist would just as readily have promised him deification to get him happily on the rocket for the pole. Tinny Pete had no wish to be torn limb from limb. He knew very well that it would end that way if the population learned from this anachronism that there was a small elite which considered itself head, shoulders, trunk, and groin above the rest. The fact that this assumption was perfectly true, and the fact that the elite was condemned by its superiority to a life of the most grinding toil, would not be considered. The difference would. The psychist finally put Barlow aboard the rocket with some thirty people, real people, headed for the pole. Barlow was airsick all the way because of a post-hypnotic suggestion Tinny Pete had planted in him. One idea was to make him as averse as possible to a return trip, and another idea was to spare the other passengers from his aggressive, talkative company. Marlowe, during the first day at the pole, was reminded of his first day in the army. It was the same, now where the hell are we going to put you, business, until he took a firm line with them. Then instead of acting like supply sergeants, they acted like hotel clerks. It was a wonderful, wonderfully calculated build-up, and one that he failed to suspect. After all, in his time a visitor from the past would have been lionized. At day's end he reclined in a snug underground billet with the sixty-mile gales roaring yards overhead, and tried to put two and two together. It was like the old times, he thought, like a coup in real estate where you had the competition by the throat, like a fifty percent rent boost when you knew damned well there was no place for the tenants to move, like smiling when you read over the breakfast orange juice that the city council had decided to build a school on the ground you had acquired by a deal with the city council. And it was simple. He would just sell tundra building lots to eagerly suicidal lemmings, and that was absolutely all there was to solving the problem that had these double domes spinning. They'd have to work out most of the details, naturally, but what the hell? That was what subordinates were for. He'd need specialists in advertising, engineering, communications. Did they know anything about hypnotism? That might be helpful. If not, there'd have to be a lot of bribery done, but he'd make sure, damn sure, there were unlimited funds. Just selling building lots to lemmings. He wished as he fell asleep that poor Verna could have been in on this. It was his biggest, most stupendous deal. 
Verna, that sharp shyster Sam Immerman, must have swindled her. It began the next day with people coming to visit him. He knew the approach. They merely wanted to be helpful to their illustrious visitor from the past, and would he help fill them in in about his era, which unfortunately was somewhat obscure historically, and what did he think could be done about the problem? He told them he was too old to be roped any more, and they wouldn't get any information out of him until he got a letter of intent from at least the polar president, and a session of the polar congress empowered to make him dictator. He got the letter and the session, he presented his program, was asked whether his conscience didn't revolt at its callousness, explained succinctly that a deal was a deal, and anybody who wasn't smart enough to protect himself didn't deserve protection. Caveat emptor, he threw in for scholarship, and had to translate it to let the buyer beware. He didn't, he stated, give a damn about either the morons or their intelligent slaves. He had told them his price, and that was all he was interested in. Would they meet it, or wouldn't they? The polar president offered to resign in his favor with certain temporary emergency powers that the polar congress would vote him, if he thought them necessary. Barlow demanded the title of world dictator, complete control of world finances, salary to be decided by himself, and the publicity campaign and historical write-up to begin at once. As for the emergency powers, he added, they are neither to be temporary nor limited. Somebody wanted the floor to discuss the matter, with a declared hope that perhaps Barlow would modify his demands. You've got the proposition, Barlow said. I'm not knocking off even ten percent. But what if the Congress refuses, sir? the President asked. Then they can stay up here at the pole and try to work it out yourselves. I'll get what I want from the morons. A shrewd operator like me doesn't have to compromise. I haven't got a single competitor in this whole cock-eyed moronic era. Congress waived debate and voted by show of hands. Barlow won unanimously. You don't know how close you came to losing me, he said in his first official address to the joint houses. I'm not the boy to haggle. Either I get what I ask, or I go elsewhere. The first thing I want is to see designs for a new palace for me. Nothing unostentatious either and your best painters and sculptors to start working on my portraits and statues. Meanwhile, I'll get my staff together. He dismissed the Polar President and the Polar Congress, telling them that he had let them know when the next meeting would be. A week later, the program started with North America the first target. Mrs. Garvey was arresting after dinner, before the ordeal of turning on the dishwasher. The TV, of course, was on, and it said, Ooh! Long, shuddery, and ecstatic, the cue for the Parfume Assault Criminale, spot commercial. Girls, said the announcer hoarsely, do you want your man? It's easy to get him, easy as a trip to Venus. Huh? said Mrs. Garvey. What's the matter? snorted her husband, starting out of a doze. You hear that? What? He said, easy like a trip to Venus. So, 
Well, I thought you couldn't get to Venus. I thought they just had that one rocket thing that crashed on the moon. Ah, women don't keep up with the news, said Garvey righteously, subsiding again. Oh, said his wife uncertainly. And the next day, on Henry's other mistress, there was a new character who had just breezed in, Buzz Rentjaw, master rocket pilot on the Venus run. On Henry's other mistress, the broadcast drama about you and your neighbors, folksy people, ordinary people, real people. Mrs. Garvey listened with an amazement over a cooling cup of coffee as Buzz made hay for her hazy convictions. Mona, oh, darling, it's so good to see you again. Buzz, you don't know how I've missed you on that dreary Venus run. Sound, Venetian blinds run down. Key turned in door lock. Mona, was it very dull, dearest? Buzz, let's not talk about my humdrum job, darling. Let's talk about us. Sound, creaking bed. Well, the program was back to normal at last. That evening, Mrs. Garvey tried to ask again whether her husband was sure about those rockets, but he was dozing right through, take it and stick it, so she watched the screen and forgot the puzzle. She was still rocking with laughter at the gag line, would you buy it for a quarter? When the commercial went on for the detergent powder she always faithfully loaded her dishwasher with on the first of every month. The announcer displayed mountains of subs from a tiny piece of the stuff and coyly added, Of course, Clean-O don't lay around for you to pick up like the soap root on Venus, but it's pretty cheap and it's almost pretty near just as good. So for us plain folks who ain't lucky enough to live up there on Venus, Clean-O is the real cleaning stuff. Then the chorus went into their Clean-O is the stuff jingle, but Mrs. Garvey didn't hear it. She was a stubborn woman, but it occurred to her that she was very sick indeed. She didn't want to worry her husband. The next day she quietly made an appointment with her family Freud. In the waiting room she picked up a fresh new copy of Reader's Pablum and put it down with a faint palpitation. The lead article, according to the table of contents on the cover, was titled, The Most Memorable Venusian I Ever Met. The Freud will see you now, said the nurse, and Mrs. Garvey tottered into his office. His traditional glasses and whiskers were reassuring. She choked out the ritual, Freud, forgive me, for I have neuroses. He chanted the antiphonal, Tut! my dear girl what seems to be the trouble i got like a hole in the head she quavered i seem to forget all kinds of things things like everybody seems to know and i don't well that happens to everybody occasionally my dear i suggest a vacation on venus the freud stared open-mouthed at the empty chair his nurse came in and demanded hey did you see how she scrammed what was the matter with her he took off his glasses and whiskers meditatively. You can search me. I told her she would maybe try a vacation on Venus. A momentary bafflement came into his face, and he dug through his desk drawers until he found a copy of the four-color, profusely illustrated journal of his profession. It had come that morning, and he had lip-read it, 
although looking mostly at the pictures. He leafed through to the article, Advantages of the Planet Venus in Rest Cures. It's right there, he said. The nurse looked. It sure is, she agreed. Why shouldn't it be? The trouble with these here neurotics, decided the Freud, is that they all the time got to fight reality. Show in the next twitch. He put on his glasses and whiskers again, and forgot Mrs. Garvey and her strange behavior. Freud, forgive me, for I have neuroses. Tut, my dear girl, what seems to be the trouble? Like many cures of mental disorders, Mrs. Garvey's was achieved largely by self-treatment. She disciplined herself sternly out of the crazy notion that there had been only one rocket ship, and that one a failure. She could join without wincing eventually in any conversation on the desirability of Venus as a place to retire on this fabulous floral profusion. Finally, she went to Venus. All her friends were trying to book passage with the Evening Star Travel and Real Estate Corporation, but naturally the demand was crushing. She considered herself lucky to get a seat at last for the two-week summer cruise. The spaceship took off from a place called Los Alamos, New Mexico. It looked just like all the spaceships on television and in the picture magazines, but was more comfortable than you would expect. Mrs. Garvey was delighted with the fifty or so fellow passengers assembled before takeoff. They were from all over the country, and she had a distinct impression that they were on the brainy side. The captain, a tall, hawk-faced, impressive fellow named Ryan something or other, welcomed them aboard and trusted that their trip would be a memorable one. He regretted that there would be nothing to see, because, due to the meteorite season, the ports would be dogged down. It was disappointing, yet reassuring that the line was taking no chances. There was the expected momentary discomfort at take-off, and then two monotonous days of droning travel through space to be whiled away in the lounge at cards and craps. The landing was a routine bump. Voyagers were issued tablets to swallow to immunize them against any minor ailments. When the tablets took effect, the lock was opened, and Venus was theirs. It looked much like a tropical island on Earth except for a blanket of cloud overhead, but it had a heady, other-world quality that was intoxicating and glamorous. The ten days of the vacation were suffused with a hazy magic. The soap route, as advertised, was free and sudsy. The fruits, mostly tropical varieties transplanted from earth, were delightful. The simple shelters provided by the travel company were more than adequate for the balmy days and nights. It was with sincere regret that the voyagers filed again into their ship and swallowed more tablets doled out to counteract and sterilize any Venus illnesses they might unwittingly communicate to Earth. Vacationing was one thing. Power politics was another. At the pole, a small man was in a soundproof room, his face deathly pale and his body limp in a straight chair. In the American Senate chamber, Senator Hull Mendoza, Syndicate, North California, was saying, Mr. President and gentlemen, I would be remiss in my duty as a legislator if I didn't bring to the attention of the august body I see here a 
perilous situation which is fraught with peril. As is well known to the members of this august body, the perfection of space flight has brought with it a situation I can only describe as fraught with peril. Mr. President and gentlemen, now that swift American rockets now traverse the trackless void of space between this planet and our nearest planetarial neighbor in space, and gentlemen, I refer to Venus, the star of dawn, the brightest jewel in fair Vulcan's diadem. Now, I say, I want to inquire what steps are being taken to colonize Venus with a vanguard of patriotic citizens like those Minutemen of yore. Mr. President and gentlemen, there are in this world nations, envious nations, I do not name Mexico, who by fair means or foul may seek to wrest from Columbia's grasp the torch of freedom of space, nations whose low living standards and innate depravity give them an unfair advantage over the citizens of our fair republic. This is my program. I suggest that a city of more than 100,000 population be selected by lot. The citizens of the fortunate city are to be awarded choice lands on Venus free and clear to have and to hold and convey to their descendants. And the national government shall provide free transportation to Venus for these citizens. And this program shall continue city by city until there has been deposited on Venus a sufficient vanguard of citizens to protect our manifest rights in that planet. Objections will be raised, for carping critics we have always with us. They will say that there isn't enough steel. They will call it a cheap giveaway. I say there is enough steel for one city's population to be transferred to Venus, and that is all that is needed. For when the time comes for the second city to be transferred, the first emptied city shall be wrecked for the needed steel. And is it a giveaway? Yes! It is the most glorious giveaway in the history of mankind. Mr. President and gentlemen, there is no time to waste. Venus must be American. Black Cooperman at the pole opened his eyes and said feebly, The style was a little uneven. Do you think anybody'll notice? You did fine, boy, just fine, Barlow reassured him. Paul Mendoza's bill became law. Drafting machines at the South Pole were busy around the clock, and the Pittsburgh steel mills spewed millions of plates into the Los Alamos spaceport of the Evening Star Travel and Real Estate Corporation. It was going to be Los Angeles, for logistic reasons, and the three most accomplished psychokineticists went to Washington and mingled with the crowd at the drawing to make certain that the Los Angeles capsule slithered into the fingers of the blindfolded senator. Los Angeles loved the idea, and a forest of spaceships began to blossom in the desert. They weren't very good spaceships, but they didn't have to be. A team at the South Pole worked at Barlow's direction on a mail setup. There would have to be letters to and from Venus to keep the slightest taint of suspicion from arising. Luckily, Barlow remembered that the problem had been solved once before by Hitler. Relatives of persons incinerated in the furnaces of Lublin or Majdanek continued to get cheery postal cards. 
the los angeles flight went off on schedule under tremendous press newsreel and television coverage the world cheered the gallant angelinos who were setting off on their patriotic forage to the land of milk and honey the forest of spaceships thundered up and up and out of sight without untoward incidents billions envied the angelinos cramped and short on rations though they were wreckers from san francisco whose capsule came up second moved immediately into the city of the angels for the scrap steel their own flight would require senator holman doza's constituents could do no less the president of mexico hypnotically alarmed at this extension of yankee imperialismo beyond the stratosphere launched his own venus colony program across the water it was england versus ireland france versus germany china versus russia india versus indonesia ancient hatreds grew into the flames that were rocket ships assailing the air by hundreds daily dear ed how are you sam and i are fine and hope you are fine is it nice up there like they say with food and close grown on trees i drove by springfield yesterday and it sure looked funny all the buildings down but of course it is worth it we have to keep the greasers in their place do you have any trouble with them on venus drop me a line some time your loving sister alma dear alma i am fine and i hope you are fine it is a fine place here fine climate and easy living the doctor told me today that i seem to be ten years younger he thinks there is something in the air here keeps people young we do not have much trouble with the greasers here they keep to their sails it is just a question of us outnumbering them and staking out the best places for americans in south bay i know a nice little island that i have been saving for you and sam with lots of blanket trees and ham bushes hoping to see you and sam soon your loving brother ed sam and alma were on their way shortly pop prob got a dividend in every nation after the immigration had passed the halfway mark the lonesome stay-at-homes were unable to bear the melancholy of a low population density their conditioning had been to swarms of their kin after that point it was possible to foist off on the crudest stripped-down accommodations on would-be immigrants they didn't care black cooperman did a final job on president whole mendoza the last job that genius of hypnotics would ever do on any moron important or otherwise whole mendoza panic-stricken by his presidency over an empty nation joined his constituents the independence aboard which traveled the national government of america was the most elaborate of all the space ships bigger more comfortable with a lounge that was handsome though cramped and cloak-rooms for senators and representatives it went however to the same place as the others and black cooperman killed himself leaving a note that stated he couldn't live with my conscience the day after the american president departed barlow flew into a rage across his specially built desk were supposed to flow all pop prob high-level documents and this thing this outrageous thing called pop prob term 
apparently had gotten into the executive stage before he had even had a glimpse of it. He buzzed for Roger Smith, his statistician. Roger Smith seemed to be at the bottom of it. Pop prob terms seemed to be about first and second and third derivatives, whatever they were. Barlow had a deep distrust of anything more complex than what he called an average. While Roger Smith was still at the door, Barlow snapped, What's the meaning of this? Why haven't I been consulted? How far have you people got, and why have you been working on something I haven't authorized? Didn't want to bother you, Chief, said Rosie Smith. It was really a technical matter, a kind of final clean-up. Won't you come and see the work? Mollified, Barlow followed his statistician down the corridor. You still shouldn't have gone ahead without my okay, he grumbled. Where the hell would you people have been without me? That's right, Chief. We wouldn't have swung it ourselves. Our minds just don't work that way. And all that stuff you knew from Hitler, it wouldn't have occurred to us like poor Black Cooperman. They were in a fair-sized machine shop at the end of a slight upward incline. It was cold. Roger Smith pushed a button, started a motor, and a flood of arctic light poured in as the roof parted slowly. It showed a small spaceship with a door open. Barlow gaped as Rosie Smith took him by the elbow, and his other boys appeared, Swinson Swinson the engineer, Tsutsu Gimushi Duncan, his propellants man, called French advertising. "'And you go, chief,' said Tsutsu Gimushi Duncan. "'This is Paprob "'But I'm the world dictator!' "'You bet, chief. "'You'll be in history, all right. "'But this is necessary, I'm afraid.' "'The door closed. "'Acceleration slammed Barlow cruelly to the metal floor. "'Something broke, and warm, wet stuff, salty-tasting, "'ran from his mouth to his chin. "'Arctic sunlight through a port suddenly became a fierce lancet, "'stabbing his eyes.' He was out of the atmosphere. Lying twisted and broken under the acceleration, Barlow realized that some things had not changed, that Jack Ketch was never asked to dinner, however many shillings you paid him to do your dirty work, that murder will out, that crime pays only temporarily. The last thing he learned was that death is the end of pain. End of the Marching Morons Part 2 by C. M. Cornbluth